Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, the economy's equivalent of an outsider artist, of two minds blogger and author of Money and Work Unchained, Charles H. Smith. You know, humans as individuals want to belong to something important. They want to belong to something meaningful and they want to be needed. In other words, they want to contribute. Charles will be talking to us about the market, universal basic income, and how to promote distributed prosperity before it's too late. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. A whole lot has been happening here in the Team Human universe. I've been doing my best to try to keep people up on the latest developments, but they keep changing on us. Um, our first Team Human live event in New York City is going to happen in June. That'll be June 21st at the Alchemist's Kitchen in uh, basically the East Village. And we will have information about that up at teamhuman.fm as well as uh, on the Team Human Patreon page at uh, patreon.com slash teamhuman. It'll be free to all of our Patreon subscribers and a uh, nominal cost for, uh, for other people, and that's all um, to raise money for uh, Evolver, one of our uh, communications partners. 
Our first guest will be Mark Filippi. Um, you can find out more about him at somaspace.org. Uh, he's the guy that really taught me about the uh, four phases of the moon, how time is not generic, and that each week of a lunar cycle really is uh, poised to uh, assist us in, in different ways. A lot of that work really comes from folks like uh, Willem Reich and Rudolf Steiner. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, very interesting evening. For those of you who can't make it, we'll certainly have that show posted uh, a week or so later uh, as one of our episodes. This week, I've also been spending a lot of time trying to help a, uh, a company. There's a company that's trying to help... Uh, towns and cities uh, develop more circular economies only it's a it's a publicly traded company and uh, I've been going to some of their meetings and I watched this guy and you know at first I thought of him just as kind of as just this bad guy he labeled me a communist for the way I talk about uh, you know invigorating local economies and bringing uh, land and labor back to the table rather than just capital um, and I kind of labeled him as just a, I don't know, pure, uh, you know, capitalist extractor guy. But, you know, I watched him work. And I have to admit, I have a certain respect for the sort of genius that that he demonstrated. He could look at a spreadsheet of a company and understand things that you wouldn't think you could understand from looking at that spreadsheet. I mean, I understand numbers and I understand profit and loss, but he looked at it. It was this company that they were negotiating with and he could see, well, they've got to make a deal within the next two weeks or they're going to run out of funds and they're going to have to be taking money out of their pocket. And he was able to look at them that way and then use the knowledge that he had about them to really in his words, rake them over the coals. You know, he could really hold their feet to the fire because he understands that the counterparty in his negotiation was so stressed. And there's a brilliance in that, but I feel like there's also a flaw in that line of thinking, that do you use your knowledge of someone else's stress to get the most extreme terms in your favor. In other words, is that really worth it? I understand that this is, in some sense, this is the art of the deal that, that Trump would talk about, that both parties are acting in their self-interests, and it's the obligation of each party to get the very best deal for itself that it can, and that supports their own shareholders and their own investors or their kids or whoever it is that they're making money for. But getting the very best deal you can at that moment from your counterparty, is that necessarily the very best thing for the long term? Do you want the person you're making the deal with or your customer or your supplier or your partner to be that stressed? Do you want them to know that when they were in trouble in some way, that you leveraged the trouble they were in to get the very, very, very best thing you could for yourself? Is it good for the long term to have someone who's now not in a great financial position, to have someone working for you who's not getting as much money as they'd like to get in that position? Do you want someone who's that unhappy being with you to be your new partner? And I think about this a lot because I understand that that 
Trump's framework for policy and diplomacy is to make deals. And now I finally understand what he means by deals. In other words, that we should be getting the very best deal that we can in our interests, no matter what it is for the other one, for the other party, the other country, or the other state, or the company, or the environmentalists that we're dealing with. Deals are raw self-interest. Now, Normally, in a, norm, in, a, in a totally level playing field, I might say, okay, uh, I can see that. Everyone should just act in their best self-interest. But it's not a level playing field. If we're living in a world that is dominated now, say, by capitalism, then deals aren't fair negotiations. They're going to favor the larger party. The same way that uh, if, you're, if you're trying to make a deal against Walmart – you're going to lose and Walmart's going to win. They're the bigger party. They have more leverage over you. So in a in a global economy, the largest player is going to have the most leverage. So if you're a big United States negotiating against, you know, Sweden or Norway or someone by themselves, then you're going to have more power by virtue of your size. That's how capitalism works. You've got a bigger war chest. Now, nations are operating under the presumption that each one is sovereign, that each nation, larger or smaller, is sovereign in its own right. So when nations are working out uh, negotiations, it's not done from the perspective of deal-making, it's supposedly, as any United Nations uh, uh, advocate would tell you, it's from the, the notion of, of shared interest and mutual sovereignty. So nations do better when they cooperate with each other than when they compete with each other as if they were uh, uh, competitive businesses. European nations, I mean, they're looked down upon by many Americans for this, but European nations, for the most part, cooperate with each other. If anything, the invention of the Eurozone was, uh, on the one hand, about European nations cooperating with each other and treating each other as, as sovereign equals, but in the process, consolidating into a federation that was capable of competing with the large countries, that was capable of competing with China and with the U.S., who might be acting less like uh, sovereign uh, brethren than like large competitive businesses. I believe that nations do better if they're going to treat each other as friends rather than other businesses to exploit. But I feel like this leniency is now uh, being understood as a weakness or for America to enter into collaborative, cooperative uh, relationships with other countries um, is understood as the United States getting a bad deal. Oh, no, this is a bad deal. What a bad deal means to the current administration is that we didn't use every bit of leverage we had to hold our, uh, I was going to call them enemies, but to hold our collaborators' feet to the fire. 
that's not good. You know, extract the best deal. Do we extract the best deal from our kids? Do you extract the best deal from your spouse, from your friends, as if everything that you're entering into is some kind of blackmail or hostage negotiation? No, that's not good for business. You end up with ravaged, angry partners who don't have the means to participate with you. It's not good for your relationships with other people. These are your friends. They're not your your adversaries. And it's not good for international diplomacy because it just favors the largest, most hostile, desperate players rather than those who want to move towards some kind of uh, mutually beneficial outcomes. The team human approach to negotiation would be more holistic and system-wide to understand that the person or entity that you're negotiating with is not separate from you, particularly once you've made a deal. You are moving into partnership. They are going to become part of the same system as you. So you need to make deals. You need to make negotiations uh, to form alliances that benefit the other because the other is becoming part of the same system that you're going to be working in and living in and hopefully uh, thriving in. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Brian Keating, and I'm on Team Human. Hi, I'm Alex Juhas, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Jeremy Lentz, and I'm on Team Human. You're on Team Human, our guest today, the analyst behind the blog of twominds.com, Charles H. Smith. So there's there's so many ways to start uh, to start. Uh, I almost want to I almost want to start at the end. The one thing that's funny is whenever I, I write a piece that has to do with the economy or finance or corporatism, I feel like there's a large portion of the audience who's just waiting to figure out. Well, how do I invest based on <laughs> are there are there stock ticker numbers or at least a sector or you say go into commodities or go into this? Um, uh, so I, that's not what I mean by the end, but I'm kind of interested in what do you what do you think is the kind of the high leverage point for our intervention in this sort of pendulum swing between socialism and capitalism. And they're, they're using the wrong dashboard even to understand the economy. But what is our way in? Is it you know people just transacting locally? Is it how people buy? Is it how companies produce? Is it who we vote for? I mean, what do you see as a, a team, as team, team human? You know, what, what is our best avenue towards uh, kind of initiating the sort of economic change we want to see? Well, that's an excellent question. I have tried to answer it in two ways. One is at a systemic level, the structure of our economy. Now, what would it take to change the system to become more sustainable and humane, more fair and equal uh, at the systemic level? And to me, the answer is you got to start with the way money is created and distributed. Because if you don't change the way money is created and distributed, you change nothing. And that's the limitation on 
anything we can do as consumers or producers. If we're using the money that's created and distributed by you know, a handful of people at the top of the wealth power pyramid to their cronies, essentially, you know, banks, financiers, and corporations have all the access to the, the, the free money that's distributed by central banks, then we really can't change much. But despite that limitation, then there are things we can do um, at, at, as consumers and producers that and if you will, or reward those parts of the economy that are trying to, to build a sustainable future and, and then withdraw our support of those parts of the economy that are just uh, accelerating our unsustainable trajectory. Right. I mean, most of the, the well-meaning people, you know, now that I'm teaching in a real college, which is, it's a fascinating experience. I mean, most of the people who are on the side of balanced, distributed uh, economic equality are Marxists. And, you know, their critique of capitalism, while it's true, it seems to be uh, asking for, oh, well, get rid of the corporations and have government step in, in order to, I suppose, redistribute the spoils of capitalism after the fact. And while that's better intentioned, maybe, than taking everybody's money and becoming a billionaire, it doesn't seem to be uh, uh, any more productive for for the actual people that, that they might want to help. Yeah. I, Doug, I think you've identified the key failing, if you will, with this sort of feel-good socialism that's seen as the alternative, as you say, the redistribution of the spoils of capitalism. We see this in this um, idea which has a lot of traction now, which is let's tax the robots and that will fund universal basic income. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I love you know, same, that's, that's it, right? I mean, the, the robots are capitalism run amok, but we'll tax them and then we'll redistribute the goodies. And Chris Hedges had a had a, a wonderful piece just completely skewering that whole idea. And his basic point was this doesn't change anything in the structure, you know, of, of the system we have, the society and, and, and the economy. All it does is just perpetuate, you know, the corporations now have consumers with a guaranteed income so they can keep buying all their stuff and, and paying um, right. their interest. <laughs> and I thought, yes, that's right. But to really change something, we need the structure to change, right? And, and not and and the structure. What does that mean? You know, and you can go into a Marxist analysis of the mode of production, like who owns what, who owns the means of production, and the profit um, centers, and um, what we're discovering in this whole um, sort of exploration of Facebook and Google and uh, data mining and data collection is a huge part of the profit center of our economy is collecting and massaging data and then selling it to marketers and uh, distribution channels. And so um, if we wanted to say, where's our point of leverage, that's one point, <laughs> right? The, right. Yeah. And th- I guess, I mean, and then the thing that I've always wondered is if, if you know, half of the NASDAQ stock exchange seems to be depending on companies whose final exit strategy profit plan is to sell the data they've been collecting, then aren't we about to hit a data bubble where we've got all of this data, but what's it really worth if none of the people that they have data about have any money to spend in that market? Precisely. That's what I've been waiting for someone else to say. (laughs) It's like, what good is it? And even if you give everybody $1,000 a month in universal basic income, 
how much of that's going to be left to spend after the average person pays their student loan debt or, you know, uh, food, rent. I mean, there's not going to be much left. Right. And so who, who's, who's going to market all this stuff? And where, and, yeah. where, and what does it mean to live in an economy, this envisioned economy, with sort of a unidirectional flow of money? So it's like, okay, the government prints money, gives it to people who hand it over to corporations. What What is that? You know, where do, what do they do with the money when they have it then? You know? Right. And, and then you realize, following on, on what you just said, that really universal basic income and all the regions distribution ideas out there, they're simply making us a conduit. We're just a conduit in the middle of that unidirectional money flow. So we get our little universal basic income, then we make our interest payments to the banks and the financial sector, and then we buy stuff from corporate America and Google collects our data and sells it to corporate America. I mean, so where are we getting anything out of that other than perhaps basic survival? And so this is kind of to go back to your mention of Marx. is that, uh, you know, Marx's analysis of, of the, the mode of production, the means of production, I mean, a lot of it centered on who owns what, who mm-hmm. controls what, right? And so when people talk about universal basic income and these kind of redistribution things, I understand the emotional appeal of this. Like, let's make sure everybody has enough to get by. That's a very powerful and positive emotion. But it's, it's like, we're, I want to ask beyond that, who, who gets to own the valuable stuff. And if you go back to the beginnings of capitalism, the idea was, well, every person that works hard and and provides, you know, some value to their community can start gaining ownership of something. So what we have now is not only a unidirectional flow of money, which I I love your phrase, it's also a um, unidirectional flow of capital. Mm -hmm. The average uh, household owns almost nothing. And if they own a part of a house, then that's really a form of consumption, you know, because it's not a mode of production. It's not generating income, right? So I look at it and go, my gosh, what we really should be aiming for is a society where people get ownership of things. And it's not just ownership of, you know, land or factories or a share of something, but how about ownership of of the data that you're creating (laughs) that's valuable out there? How about if we get ownership of our own data? How about if we get ownership of, of the community wealth that we're helping to contribute to. I mean, there's lots of of ways of ownership, and yet I never hear any debate or discussion about ownership of valuable things. All I hear about is we're going to give everybody $1,000 a month. They're going to go off and be poets and be really happy. Right. It's, It's interesting because, I mean, on the one hand, when we live under capitalism, there's no attention at all to the flow of money, only to the the sort of static stockpiles of money. You know, we we have money with all this potential energy just sitting in these obese corporations and very little of it left to circulate through the real economy. Yet on the other hand, when they come up with solutions for things, they want to let people have just a little bit of that liquid money, actual stake in the game, no ownership. So we could all use this platform and maybe get a kickback from the platform. But wait a minute, who owns the platform? You know, and that's where you get into, you know, Trevor Schultz, kind of uh, territory where they're talking about platform cooperatives. So instead of it being an Amazon that everyone is a Turk working for, it's an Amazon that we own the platform or an Uber owned by the drivers so that even if they're making themselves obsolete, they will own the robot drivers that replace them someday. Or what Marina Gorbis now at Institute for the Future, what she calls universal basic assets rather than universal basic income. In other words, what do I own? 
Uh, but that's uh, that starts to sound revolutionary. I mean, unless we're going to build new platforms that you know uh, build them cooperatively together. We've got to take ownership of, of place, of our towns, of our land, of our resources. Right, absolutely. And I love the concept of universal basic assets because once you own a productive asset, then that generates income and you don't need a um, redistribution. Right. And so, you know, um, not to sell my own um, idea, but, you know, I've, I've That's what you're uh, like here a lot for. of people, I've, I mean, <laughs> not to sell it, at least to share it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's actually nothing to buy, so it has to be a share. <laughs> It's called the CLIME system, C-L-I-M-E is the initials of the Community Labor Integrated Money Economy. And my basic idea, and I, I will say that for all, um, you know, proto-Marxists out there, I did study Marx relatively deeply in, in university, and I still draw upon his, his work as like an inexhaustible well, if you will, of insights, not just into the mechanics of capitalism, but into human nature. In other words, the, his whole concept of alienation, of the alienation of the worker from the product of his, his or her labor. I mean, that's still like an incredibly powerful insight that we're, that we're living out, you know, that's now takes form in, um, in the term BS work, mm -hmm. right? In other words, people are, are getting paid to do work that they know is worthless and has no value. And of course, they're alienated from that. But my idea is, hey, we have to integrate, just as you proposed. If you want to integrate asset ownership and ownership of opportunity, if you will, then you're going to have to integrate the community labor and the money supply and the money system. Because if you, you know, if we're using the money that the central banks create, then basically our necks are in a noose, right? Because we need credit to live, you know, or we need credit to develop our community. And then, and so we need a, a way of creating money within our local communities. And I'm, um, you know, this, a lot of people have, have a problem with this. They wonder how that could work, but we have a technology, cryptocurrencies that um, enable this. And it's, and I don't mean Bitcoin. Bitcoin has its own uh, protocols and its own structure and its pros and cons. But what I am proposing is a, a specific form of cryptocurrency that is created in the community for and paid to people doing work in their community. For the for the for the benefit of the community and for their own ownership of that, that I think is is um, really outside the normal uh, uh, dialogue about how to right. solve our uh, and and what problem. would that look like? I mean, I'm talking to these guys from something called Digital Town, where they want to go to individual cities and give each city a blockchain to allow some kind of token, you know, exchange a local token exchange for goods and services. So they have some kind of a home field advantage against the, you know, foreign extractive Amazonian type companies. But blockchain's problems aside, so maybe there's a way to do blockchain that's going to not need so much energy as its proof of work. So we don't just destroy the planet proving the worth of our money, which is kind of ironic. Right. But how do you, how do you, if you did have, let's say you've got the, the chamber of commerce and the mayor and the board of trustees of a nice, you know, 50 or a hundred, hundred thousand person, small city saying, okay, Charles, let's just do it your way. What, what do we do? Right. And um, I'm, I'm going to place that city <laughs> in a country like Venezuela as opposed to um, one in North America. And the reason why I'm going to do that is everything I'm proposing would be considered illegal. You'd have the U.S. Marshals immediately on you saying, no, you're creating an alternative currency that's against the law. 
you know, there's only one form of money, and that's controlled by the central government and the central state. Right, so, which is the whole thing that, that I've been writing about for years, is that moment in the 11th, 12th, 13th century when each monarchy in Europe made all of the local monies illegal and forced everybody to use central currency. And now we've it's as if we've forgotten that completely, you know, that, that people act as if we live in this free market, but it's a free market with one kind of money produced by one, you know, one entity extracting value and delivering it to one place. And it's like, what sort of free market economy is that? No, absolutely. You have just described the, the core flaw in our entire system, whether you want to call it capitalism. It's still a failure if, if it's socialism. If it's a socialist government and a socialist central bank, they're still extracting and holding all the value in that one entity. Right. So, yeah. And, and that's where we get into that false dichotomy of between capitalism and socialism. It's really more like yours is describing. It's like a centralized form of money and value extraction or a decentralized form of that. And um, you're right. Right. We, yeah, but, yeah. right. It's the wrong tool. The to If the tool itself is too expensive for the, the, the task, then it's going to break one way or the other. Right. So, all right. So we go to Venezuela and we find a nice 100,000 person community there. And, and what do we do? Okay. My proposal is um, to, to really decentralize, you've got to decentralize power. And, um, and that means that you have to give the uh, community groups made up of people that live there the power to choose the projects that they think will create the most value and then pay them for doing that work. But they have to be able to choose the work. In other words, what's the biggest scarcity in their community? And, and, it's, and you can't just have one group. I've, I foresee a, a diversity of groups. In other words, there's not going to be one answer. So there, within a city of 100,000, I would anticipate at least 100 different community groups forming around what they each consider to be a, a critical need in their community. Some will say it's food. Some will say childcare. Some will say um, care for the elderly. Some will say, you know, manufacturing um, generic medicines that are in, in, in short supply, whatever the need is then they would start attacking that problem, you know, organizing their committee and their group to start doing the work. And then this cryptocurrency would be paid weekly to everybody that's that's actually doing work on that project. And I look at it as an opt-in system. In other words, if you get frustrated with the group you're in, like they're not making progress or uh, for whatever reason, then you just, you, you either leave and start your own group or you go join another group or you work part-time in two different groups. But the idea here is the money is created and distributed at the source of the work. And, you know, there's going to be people say, well, wait a minute, you know, who's going to organize this? And maybe people will scam the system. Well, with, with some really modest kind of oversight, you can, you can eliminate the complete scammers. And yes, the, some people will be less productive and some people will be more productive. But the whole, the whole idea is the system will be productive because it's, it's incentivized to you know, fill the shortages in, in that community. And it gives people freedom to choose which, which um, scarcity they're gonna personally get involved in you know, and one they're passionate about. And so this money is limited. And that's the problem with the sort of um, blockchain um, uh, crypto ideas that other people have to just go in there and start distributing it. I, there's some value to that, you know, just give everybody a thousand quat lose or whatever you wanna call it. But then, you know, that's not how mm -hmm. money works, right? Money has to have some scarcity value. And so with my proposal, it's limited to, you know, the amount of human labor done in a productive fashion, and that's who gets paid. And so there's a certain limiting 
uh, value. And so the money will, will retain some scarcity value. And I, I think um, I've talked to programmers. I'm not a programmer, so I don't know. But I've been told that the blockchain is very cumbersome. It's, it's weighted towards security. But there's lots of other database structures that could be used to issue cryptocurrencies that don't have... Uh, the blockchain uh, aspect. Right. I mean, I was even thinking, you know, back to, uh, you know, Japan in the 1970s when they started their elder care dollar system. You know, there was no big technology for that at all. It was just, I'm going to put in three hours bathing your grandparent in Tokyo and you put in two hours bathing my grandparent in Fiji, you know, and it just, it, it just works out because you, you either go up, down, you know, up or down two or three uh, hours. You're not looking to accumulate hours so much as to stay really just at zero if, if you can. Right, right. And I think the, the, the brilliance of, of cryptocurrencies is we can take that hour of labor that, that in a, a, a labor bank, like you suggested, and turn it into a currency that could be used, if not universally, at least semi-universally. In other words, if there's some scarcity value to this new community cryptocurrency, then I would say that people who have solar panels that are sitting on their shelf somewhere and a generator sitting around or a used um, alternator for a, a truck. There's lots of things in the industrialized global economy that are sitting around collecting dust, just as you said about all the piles of money sitting in corporations. And so I foresee that people will take their overproduction, all their stock that's sitting around collecting dust. Will they take this new community money in exchange? Well, it's doing nothing for them sitting on their shelf. Why wouldn't they take the, the, the cryptocurrency, especially if it can be uh, converted into other currencies, which it, it will inevitably, whether officially or with a black market. So um, anyways, you, you see the direction I'm yeah. going, where if you integrate labor, community, and money, then you've actually got a system with the right incentives. And the system we have now, whether it's capitalist or socialist or some blend of it, the incentives are all horrible. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's like insane, right? The incentives are are disastrous. Well, right. I mean, it, 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 even if we replaced, you know, your triad with land, labor, and capital, uh, if we had still, if, if land and labor entered the picture, we'd still be in a better situation than we are now, you know, where right now capital is the only one with a seat at the table and, you know, land and labor are, are just uh, uh, commodities to be extracted. That's right. And, um, you know, I'm sure you get a lot of this too, because you, you, um, you write about, um, future um, and the present with an eye on the future, you, you must get a lot of feedback from people that say, well, you know, labor is not going to have any value because the robots will do everything. And I always say, well, wait a minute. Right. I always ask, well, have, have you ever had any experience in assembling, manufacturing, maintaining, or programming <laughs> a robot? You know, that process isn't free. I'm really sorry to tell you. The, the robot, even if a robot makes a robot, there's hugely costly inputs yeah. like energy and materials. And, and so it's like robots no. aren't free and, and no <laughs> one's going to invest in a robot unless it's going to make a profit. So now we've suddenly eliminated 90% of the human um, activity on the planet, which isn't profitable. Well, right. So robots aren't going to do work. It even goes stuff. back to, I mean, I mean, you know, it's like you'll, you'll realize that the utility value that robots can provide is not what we were really after in the first place. You know, I even think the giant wealthy super capitalists who end up with 100,000 people working for them, they don't care what those 100,000 people are doing. They just want the 100,000 people under them. You know, finally, it's the it's the human to human interaction and power relationships that we're that we're longing for or fetishizing or or valuing on some level. 
No, you're absolutely right. And I love hearing you say that because um, I, I use this scheme of low touch and high touch work, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's basically describing the same thing that a, a robot, even one with a cutesy face made in Japan is still going to be low touch, right? It's not, it's actually not a human connection and we crave the human connection. And that's what we, that's what's scarce, you know? And so um, just having a bunch of, of robots making stuff that that's not really, as you say, solving it. Really, when I hear people talk about things like, um, you know, robots and universal basic income and so on, it seems to me they're they've they've lost track of the fact that we have no social structures other than a marketplace. That's right. it. I mean, we've lost so many other social structures. And I was curious if you if you see that as well. Yeah, I mean, I do. And in in some ways, I blame the digital for this. You know, and people say, "Oh, but you used to love digital, now you hate digital." It's like, no, I loved digital as a means to an end, not as the end in itself. So, you know, digital was great back in the days when it's what allowed me to meet, you know, Howard Rheingold and John Barlow and Stuart Brand and, you know, all these, these, you know, Brenda Laurel, these great people who I would only have read about in a magazine were it not for the internet and the ability to reach out and find out where they are and, and go to San Francisco and meet with them. So I, I always look, or, or the net was a great way to start the rave movement, electronic dance music, and thousands of kids joining together and looking at pictures of fractals on the walls. Or, uh, so you know, digital was a, a, a way back to the, the physical social reality that television had really taken away from us. I was from the TV generation, just staring into the tube. And now it feels like the internet is just uh, uh, recapitulating or reifying television. That you know, the the it's Netflix, you know, but digital, and so it's it's captured people again in this in this uh, awful desocializing way. But then you know, so digital plus capitalism plus the desocialization of the last century. Um, you know, leads us where we are in this very fractious, you know, environment. And I, I feel like digital reinforces that. The, the thing I was writing about since the kind of the Trump popularity were the two biases of the digital media environment, which are, you know, that everything's discrete and separate, which of course is going to lead to polarization and false binaries. And then that everything's in memory. You know, it's all happening on memory in, in uh, uh, computer memory. So we end up kind of hearkening back to these false memories of when America was great or when Britain was an empire and these so that's how you get this sort of, uh, instead of Ronald Reagan saying to tear down this wall from the television era of globalism, we get Donald Trump saying, let's build a wall, you know, to bring us back to this false memory of a discreet America. Uh, so yeah, I've been, uh, you know, it's kind of like a, a Robert Putnam's bowling alone and the collapse of, uh, you know, American clubs and civic life. Uh, and that's where we are now. But the beauty of it is I feel like people are waking up to that. You know, I feel like, uh, you know, and in some ways, the poorer, poorer people get, the more they tend to uh, look to one another for for solidarity and support. So, you know, if there is no mana coming from, you know, corporate heaven, then uh, maybe people will get to the place where they realize, well, if I have needs and you have skills and you have needs and I have skills, then we have the basis for an economy. We don't need a bank to lend money to a factory to build something. You know, but, you know, it's going to require uh, a rehabilitating 
our uh, trust mechanisms, our social mechanisms. And that's you know, that's what Team Human is for. It's really what this show is for, is to say, come out, find the others. We're here. You know, <laughs> it's okay. You look into someone's eyes, breathe with them, uh, you know, and enjoy your neighborhood. But uh, it's, it's a tough fight. Right, right. Well, you know, that's a, um, I, I love how you encapsulated in all these trends together and, and how, and exposed how, you know, like everything in life, there's a yin and the yang to, to digital networking. And that, mm. um, I, I want, just wanted to throw in another sort of individual thing, like, cause we, 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 uh, we interact with these topics, both in the abstract, which is important. We need to understand these ideas and these concepts, right. but we also interact in, uh, as an, as an individual. Right. And so one of the things that I, I noticed is lost in this discussion about redistribution and, and how the economy is going wrong and what do we need to redo to set it right is, you know, humans as individuals want to belong to something important. They want to belong to something meaningful and they want to be needed. In other words, they want to contribute. And mm-hmm. so we have part of what's so destructive to me about this, uh, the, the current version of capitalism is it's uh, sort of institutionalized this idea that of uh, self-interest and, and, and maximizing your own individual profit and scam is all, that's the sum total of human nature. Right. All we want to do is maximize our own profit. And it's like, well, sure, self-interest is part of human nature, but we're a social animal. That's only part of who we are. We're also interested in belonging to something and be, and doing something and meaningful. I mean, you write a lot about incentives. And I think what people are missing out on is the idea that belonging and creating value is an incentive in itself. It's an intrinsic motivation to actually do something. Yes. You know, not something that you need to compensate for with money. You know, it's like, no, I'm getting to build a park. I'm getting to raise a child. I've just taught someone how to read. You know, that feels good. Right, right. And and one of the things I've also uh, picked up on in your work, and, and, and there's echoes elsewhere, for, um, is that, you know, our social... Uh, universe has been basically monetized and privatized. So, you know, if you go to a town that's functioning, then they have parades and they have a central square and, you know, all those things that people like that allow them to interact with other people from a variety of social and political um, uh, spheres. And, and, and the spectrum is there, right? That's what we enjoy. We don't want to be boxed in with people that, that believe exactly the same things we do, that look exactly like us and all of that. That's boring. And but they do. I mean, the weird thing is, if you look at real estate trends, the number one factor leading someone to move to a particular neighborhood is that there will be other people like me. I mean, and that's part of what's redrawing the uh, the electoral map as well, is these extreme red and extreme blue zones, uh, because people are, are, I mean, they're moving towards the, the, the surface desire to be with people like them, even though their desire is for a more heterogeneous social life. Right. And it could be as people start feeling that the system is um, falling apart or de- decaying that they, they move in a tribal way. But um, Oh, huddle, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's lots of socio- sociological studies on that, that, you know, when we look at how people choose marriage partners, it turns out that it's mostly related to their, um, their economic class, not necessarily their ethnicity, hmm. you know, that kind of thing. And humans do love to mix it up. But um, my, my point was, you know, now we have so many, um, so few places where you can go 
to meet other people or to, to organize in your community, everything's privatized. And so, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, the stadium, well, that's, you know, that's managed by a corporation for the benefit of the city or whatever. And there's no town square, so to speak. Right. And uh, you have to get a you have to get a mm. permit, you know. Uh, and so, and so, there's a, there's a lot of obstacles to the kind of world that we're describing because public space has been privatized or has been, it's now tightly managed, and so there's lots of obstacles to to right. getting together with 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 people unless you're in a marketplace where you have to spend money. It's like, oh yeah, there's cafes and brew pubs and that kind of thing. Even farmers sure. markets, which are you know a step in the right direction, but yeah. it's like we need that excuse to have a public square. That's right. And every vendor has to pony up some money, and which means they mm-hmm. have to make enough money to, to show up next week. And so, right. And so it's it's all about the marketplace right. is the sum total of our of our common commonality now. And that's, um, that's too limiting. We, right. we need some other places. <laughs> so then on the, on the one hand, we have all of these on the ground obstacles, but then, you know, when I'm lying in my bed at night, thinking about the, the mega obstacles, it's like, okay, let's say everything we're arguing for is, is initiated and we start having local currencies and a more circular economy. And it's, it slowly drains the larger corporations back down to manageable size, because instead of doing 90% of our shopping at Walmart, people are doing 10 or 20% and they sort of adjust. But really what you're talking about or what we're talking about is a, a plan or a strategy of, of, I guess you call it degrowth, right? Of a, a degrowth, which and which is fine with me because people have too much stuff and there's too much economic activity and not enough time spent enjoying other people. But how do we as a nation degrow and then still pay back the Chinese or whoever it is that that we're in debt to? <laughs> right, um, and that's uh, you've just identified um, the key uh, again, sort of in Marxist terms, the the, the key internal uh, contradiction to the system that we have, and um, there are cultural contradictions, of course, um, within the system that we have. Um, that, as you say, people are atomized consumers, but that, that really doesn't satisfy us. And so we're told, we'll just go buy more, you know? And so there's a lot of contradictions mm-hmm. built into the system. And you just highlighted one, which is money, is if you're not creating more credit constantly, then you're not going to have enough money to pay the interest on the debt you've already accumulated. So it's it's like a, um, it's like a machine that can't be stopped. Because Congress could forgive our loans, right. let's say, you know, it, it just in an ideal world. Say, okay, your student loans, gone. Your Visa card, gone. Just start over, little people. You're fine. But as a nation, we're going to be in trouble, right? Because we, we, our nation is like an individual that owes the bank. So I guess what? We give them Taiwan? Here, you take Taiwan. It's okay. Sorry. Um, what do you, what do you see, or does de, does degrowth sort of have to be a global phenomenon for it to work? Well, that's an excellent question, and I think it it um, it's I think the domino theory is the way to go. Is that if one country, a major country, stops consuming, then um, that's going to topple all the the countries that were living off of making stuff to sell to them. So, you know, say for instance, if the U.S. for whatever reason um, 
let's say like a lot of people think um, the dollar collapses in value and suddenly we have no more purchasing power. Well, then China can't ship us $700 billion worth of stuff every year because we don't have the money to pay them. And just cr printing more of it, it's worthless and it only makes right. it more worthless. And so then China topples. And so, um, yeah, I think it is a global phenomenon. Um, and the money supply as it stands now, I, I don't see how it's sustainable. You know, that at some point, History suggests this this thing of creating credit in endless amounts at, while your real economy struggles. Um, that 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 disconnect eventually breaks. What's your journey? I mean, were you were you like the guy on Billionaire doing hedge trading or something? How did you figure all this yeah, stuff out? Well, it's um it's been a long process. I mean, I'm 64, and it's um and I started uh, working my way through the university, studying philosophy as a carpenter and and a go-to guy for a contractor. So I picked up a huge uh -huh. amount of skills when I was young that I still use today. And so um, that's that's. I think I, I like to think of myself as having one foot in the practical side of life that I've often been had very low income because, you know, I was as I tried to become a writer. Well, everybody knows the drill. You're lucky to make a few thousand dollars a year that way. You got to make a living some other way. Yeah. And so one foot in the practical world um, and uh, another world in this, you know, philosophizing where we're trying to we're trying to find the core dynamics in play and we're trying to understand the assumptions that everyone else is is working on but is blind to and that kind of thinking and so i think it requires some of each that's my path at least so then what happened so you were carpenting you know building things and bookcases and things hammering and nailing and, and houses and, yeah and mm -hmm. designing and all that and machines power tools the whole thing and then and you're just reading and learning and figuring things out as you go. I mean, how did you come to understand the economy? Right. <clears throat> well, um, I decided after about a decade of that of, of that construction work that I'd done everything that I could um, that I wanted to do, and I didn't want to just repeat mm -hmm. myself. And so I moved to the Bay Area to Berkeley. And wanted to start freelance writing. And so what um, the jobs I was offered were related to housing because that's what I knew as a builder. And so it was a pretty easy transition to move from uh, starting to write about housing to design to urban planning, all these kinds of issues. And then when the housing bubble uh, started to rise up in the early 2000s, then I started having to dig into uh, the financial side of housing. And then that led me into the entire economy because of course they, it's all interconnected. So if you're interested in one part, yeah. it will lead you into the entire structure if, if, if you go there. So that's how I learned about the whole economy. Right. That's what happened with me. I mean, you know, we're both friends with Richard Metzger of, of Dangerous Minds. And um, I was writing about what I said. This is, you know, 2004, 2005, before the, the, they generally knew. I was explaining that the we're about to have a mortgage crisis. That, you know, because I knew people in Park Slope, Brooklyn, who were financing their homes with nothing other than the increasing valuation of their home. You know? <laughs> So they were, you know, taking a mortgage with a with a with a you know five year interest only mortgage, and then waiting five years, and then refinancing at a higher valuation because real estate was going up five years from then, and watching all of these people with not enough money buying million dollar or two million dollar townhouses, and it was so clear that this was going to break, but nobody 
believed me. And I would talk to, you know, serious people, economists, people with PhDs, the guys running banks, running mortgage companies who would say, oh, your math is wrong. You don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand how the economy works. And you were the only other one saying, <laughs> and this is on, uh, I must have been on up two minds, saying, uh, this isn't going to work, people. <laughs> Something bad is coming. Which I guess, you know, I mean, who wants to be right about something like that? But you were. Yeah, and, and so were you. And, um, and it's, it's an interesting phenomenon that you're describing as a sort of meta story to the, the mortgage uh, crisis. Was people don't want to hear what um, anything against the solution they've decided upon. And so the, the solution to getting rich was to, you know, uh, flip, ho- flip houses, right? Or extract the value from your ever-growing uh, wealth in, in housing. Right. And so people didn't want to hear something against that. And now I think I feel a tremendous resistance in the sort of liberal uh, sort of sectors of the economy or society against a universal basic income. Like it, people have glommed onto this idea that we can just redistribute a little bit of, of as you say, mm-hmm. the ill-gotten gains of, of capitalism and it's all going to fix everything. It's, we're all going to be good. That's the the solution. And like Chris said, just pointed out, they're, they they're willfully ignoring the structural imbalances and um, inequalities that are built into the system we have. And so, universal basic income doesn't isn't going to fix anything. But you won't get any traction uh, trying to convince people of that. They don't want to hear it. In fact, right. they get grumpy. They do. But but the way in then is to say, well, rather than redistributing the spoils of capitalism after the fact, what if we pre-distribute the means of production before the fact? Right. And then sometimes people go. Huh? <laughs> it's like, you know, and that, but it's something appealing. The, the problem is that it goes against this sort of modern idea of changing your job every six or eight months. Why do you want to own the means of production if you're going to, you know, move on to some other thing? Or why do you want to own the means of production if that's the thing that's going to get sold anyway? Uh, you know, if we're just going to flip this company, like in, in the 90s, we'd flip this house. You know, and I, we're both arguing for something more like, almost more like family businesses, that you own it and stay in it and love doing it and, and, and care about its legacy. But that's, that's a, it's foreign to the way most people think about this now. Right, right. And, and you could easily foresee a thing um, in, my, in my sort of scheme where there's, there's money, i.e. capital, being generated by human labor, specifically via a cryptocurrency. Well, then you could buy the materials and start building houses um, or housing that's owned by the community. And so, you know, you helped build a, you know, 12 units uh, for, for your community. You would own some part of that and um, as part of the community. And so, yeah, you, you can see a variety of models for exactly what you're talking about. We, we may not own like the, uh, some $2 billion chip factory, but um, you can own other stuff. That's and you can also own social capital. Like you can have a rich mm. life that without ownership of of financial wealth, you can have enough financial wealth to get by. But you, what your your real wealth is is in having a meaningful life. Right. I mean, there were these old ladies that used to sit and near. I, I had a place that I rented a long time ago near Little Italy, in New York, and. I used to watch every evening around five or six o'clock, these two old ladies would come out with these folding beach chairs and sit out at the stoop on these chairs. You know, women who are, you know, in rent control for $210 a month apartments, whatever they were. But 
they were talking to everybody. They had their children would come, their grandchildren would come. They, you know, it was, uh, and I was thinking, my God, these women are so rich. You know, <laughs> they're richer than any of the wealthy people I know because they're just sitting loving life, you know, and so engaged with their community and watching. Plus they were they were keeping the streets safe by being bearing witness to everything that was going on. They were keeping their, you know, the the girls from getting pregnant, their boys from going on drugs. It was uh, such an amazing just demonstration of of uh, uh, social joy and and uh uh you know, sort of the self-regulation that happens or the community regulation that happens when there's people out there having social fun. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating uh, description of exactly, and we all have an experience of something like that. And and one way of describing that is like prosperity without abundance, you know? And and, and so, um, and it right. reminds me, listening to your story, I was reminded of some study in Hong Kong where they studied the uh, maids who tend to be uh, Filipino women uh, who, you know, move to Hong Kong to, to work as maids, work six days a week, a week, work really hard, have only Sundays off. And um, their happiness level compared to the, the happiness level of their wealthy uh, bosses. And it turns out, of course, the bosses were often suicidal, very depressed. Um, and, and the maids had a source of joy in that they uh, got together on Sundays. And that was the meaningful point of, of their lives. And that they were considered um, heroines um, in, in their home communities because they had sacrificed themselves to go work in Hong Kong and send the money back home. And so they had social value and meaning and positive social roles while their rich owners had none of that. And, and so they were depressed and suicidal. Like, yeah, they had a lot of financial wealth, but, but no meaning and no source of happiness. Right. In some ways, what we're talking about is, you know, moving from a growth-based economy to a flow-based economy, from the accumulation of wealth to the living experience of wealth in real time. But where that makes some people nervous is thinking, well, I'm experiencing all this prosperity now, but what about when I get old and can't earn any money? How do I save enough money? Or And then, you know, we could tell them as I try to, well, if you've established community relationships and you're really embedded with family and friends and neighbors, then you're not going to need the same amount of money because there's going to be people around who want to take care of you. But that's still a little scary to bank on, <laughs> to, to bet on uh, as people get older. So, you know, what can people do now? You know, most most people, certainly in the professional class now, have a couple of hundred thousand dollars in some kind of a 401k plan. And they're thinking this is this important thing for their future. They've got to kind of hold on to this or make it grow or what can they do with it? Do they just go like everybody else and put their money in the S&P and contribute to the problem? Or is there something else they could be doing with their capital, which is less less destructive, but still might provide them with something in right. the future? Right. That's an excellent question. And of course, there's this whole area that I am not an expert in, so-called social investing, right? But um, right. clearly- I mean, do you have retirement funds? Do you are are, are you gonna or are you gonna live off the blog till the end? <laughs> 
Well, I do count on my skills. In other words, until it, it, I may not be able to use the skill saw at 85, right? Um, and that's that's so I will, you know, have fewer physical skills I can use to contribute. But um, hopefully, uh, unless I get uh, dementia, then I can still use my mind. But I think to answer your larger question, yeah, we all have ways of community of of investing in our community. And for me, I use my retirement money. It's a, it's called a solo 401k. It's for a, it's when you're self-employed that um, you know uh, my wife and I bought an investment house and you can say well you're 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 part of those some that are investing in, in exploiting but you know it's like well it's a real property I don't even know what I don't know what an investment house is even I mean you didn't buy Goldman Sachs or something no I uh, I we bought no. a house. <laughs> yeah and it has trees on oh you bought an oh you bought a house as an investment yeah, that's right. Oh, okay. You didn't like buy a finance firm. Okay. <laughs> no. And, um, and so the thing is, is if you control something locally, like you own, you own a piece of forest or you own a house or, or something with, with your retirement money, well, then you at least get to say you have some control over that. Right. You know, like in other words, you own the house. Well, a, a relative in need, you could, you could put them up there or you could give somebody a discount or you could – I mean, there's lots of things you can do right. within your community right. if you exactly. control the assets. So I would say buy local. Buy stuff that you actually control. That's one way forward. Right, twenty acres of land that could be farmed, and then you live on it, and you hire people to help farm it, and or a a, a parking lot, or God knows what, but something that could generate revenue for you, you know, almost passively That's right, later but on, but still providing value to the community. You know, by the by the, the, the if you live on a brownstone, right. by the unit above you or below you. I mean, I don't know. At least you could, your neighbors, you could give somebody a break right. and still make some money. Right, right. Or you own a storefront and help, you know, invest in someone else's business by giving them the first year free rent to get off the ground. And then, uh, you know, then you've got, you got a friend for life. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And then you're not, and you know, the value of whatever you own locally, the storefront or the parking lot, it may fluctuate, right? Because if the economy goes up and down or whatever, but what, what we're kind of talking about, as you say, is there's an income stream and whether you get paid in, um, in, in dollars or Bitcoin or um, packages of, of dried ramen noodles. I mean, it doesn't, you know, you'll get an income stream. Right. That's what that's what counts. Exactly. Right. And the collateral value of something in your own community. I mean, if you, even if you're just investing, if you invest in the local bookstore, the local pizzeria, at least you're seeing the fruits of your investment as opposed to outsourcing your investment to some, you know, Filipino mining company uh, on the S&P. It's like, where's that money gone? Who knows? You know, probably to something bad rather than, uh, you know, every dollar you invest in your community, you're seeing five or 10 times rather than just the single dollar. That's right. And you can, you can actually enjoy uh, being part of the community by being an owner. And, and, you know, in other words, there's a, there's a place for, for um, that kind of, you know, localized capitalism where, you know, if you're an owner, then you, you're contributing because as you say, you, 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 you can give somebody a break. You're not under some corporate guidelines to maximize, you know, your profit at every step. Well, Charles, it's so good to meet you. You sound so much younger in real life than uh, <laughs> I imagined you. Because you have you have hope and, you know, there's like hope and love and spirit in your voice, which is, you know, uh, it's comforting. Well, <laughs> Especially on, on days like this, you know, and the Facebook trials and Donald Trump tweeting messages to Russia. It's, it's great to hear someone who's like, 
you know, where you're coming from. It's like you're coming up from up from below. You know, it's a, a, a there's an earnestness in that. That's that's not refreshing. Is the wrong word. Refreshing is almost a patronizing word. It's it's uh, 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 inspiring. It's energizing. Well, I love discussing these topics people who understand them like I do. And so, of course, it's thrilling for me to finally get to, to converse with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the analyst behind the blog of twominds.com and the author of Money and Work Unchained, Charles H. Smith. We'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human, our last best hope for peace. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.